I want to highlight a few announcements for us. The announcement should be in your booklet, so if you turn to that, you can have access to that. Um, first, I want to just remind everyone that today is the last day, uh, actually for two things. Number one, it's the last day to register for our foundations class. So if you are not a member at our church, uh, we invite you to take these classes, and then afterwards you can be received as a member into our church. Or if you just want to know what we believe as a church and what the Reformed faith is, come uh, participate in these classes. Uh, very welcome to join us and learn more about uh, God, the church, and the gospel. So those dates are there. Tonight is the last day to register on our website. You can go to the announcements link and you can fill out the form there. Also, if you want to have your child baptized uh, on March 29th, you should also email the office so that we can coordinate a time uh, to discuss baptism with you and for your child. Our second uh, deadline tonight uh, is also, uh, the officer nomination. It's not in the booklet, but uh, you should have received an email saying that we're closing uh, uh, the officer nomination. Um, so uh, please uh, fill out the officer nomination uh, as you guys get home. Um, just between us two, uh, we're going to open it for one more day, but don't let that make you procrastinate to tomorrow. So do it tonight, knowing that uh, tomorrow we're going to close it. So uh, we want to give you guys some time after the retreat. I know many of you guys have been talking to one another here. So please do that. Fill out that form. Again, it's on our website. Next, uh, it's not too late to participate in Lent. So if you've not received a Lent guide, you can email the office and we will email one out to you so that we can celebrate and enjoy uh, uh, this time of, of being with the Lord, not only individually, but also as a church. And keep in mind these upcoming dates. Very important, next week is Daylight Savings. Uh, and it's the bad one, so just keep that in mind. So it's the bad daylight savings this coming Sunday. So adjust your clocks and we'll see you bright and early on that day. So at this time, we'll invite Pastor Bill, and he'll continue in preaching God's word. How's that? Is that better? Before we start, I just wanted to say something briefly about last night, just about how good it was. Uh, you all participated. I got to sit outside and see the church be the church. Uh, you got together in groups of two. You shared your lives. People were weeping, crying. People prayed for each other. And that's what the job of the church is. It's to minister. It's to care. It's to serve. Uh, we can be a little bit too focused in a professionalized culture that, okay, we have a staff and the staff is supposed to do the work of ministry. Actually, according to Ephesians 4, the staff is supposed to equip you, the church, to do the work of ministry. And that's what you were doing last night. And it was beautiful to watch um, and, and very, very moving personally to see that taking place. What led up to last night? Well, we got together the night before, many of us, uh, and if not the night before, then that morning before. And between those two points in time, what did we do? We sang about 20 different praise songs. We listened to the gospel, we processed the gospel, we hung out with each other. Last night is not this anomaly that just sort of happens on retreat. It's the culmination of all of the rest of those pieces. Can you orchestrate your life in order to produce that? No. 
Can you deaden your soul and keep that from happening? Yes. You need to be in the scripture. You need to be praising. You need to be together. You need to be in community. Those kinds of things added up together, that life that we live together ends up in last night. Last night to where we say, okay, it's nine o'clock and nobody leaves. That's a good thing. It's something that you actually want and you desire. How do you get there? It's not by ignoring the scripture. It's not by ignoring praise. It's by entering into those things that the Lord has given us so that it changes our hearts, refocuses us on what's really ultimately important and the things that we want to do, which is to be in each other's lives. We spoke so far the first couple sessions on what does it mean to pursue someone who is suffering? What's it mean to pursue someone who's struggling? We've not really talked as much about what do we do with someone who's sinning? And for that kind of uh, situation, I'd like to give us a larger framework, just recognizing that it's not a question of whether the people around you are going to fail you. Uh, they will. They're, they're, they're going to fail you often. You'll probably return the favor. And the way that with a, the larger secular world thinks, well, th that's often game changer, right? It, it cuts off the relationship. And if you do something bad enough, then there is no more relationship. I think you see a different dynamic in the scripture. It's bizarre. It's a little bit surprising. But you can learn to look at being sinned against when someone does something wrong to you. You can learn to look at that as an opportunity for deeper relationship. How do you do that? You recognize that that's God's strategy for building relationships. I'm going to say something provocative and then allow me to unpack it. God almost, underline almost, almost seems to invite us to sin against him so we can learn to trust him. I understand him being provocative. Let me, let me wrestle with this a little bit with you. You remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You think about how much work God put in to uh, setting himself up to be sinned against. First, he gives his children a command, does not give them a reason that explains this command, says, do not eat from this one tree, all the rest of the trees you can eat from, not this one, and he doesn't explain that, doesn't explain why this one is special and, and why they should stay, steer clear of it. Now, they might have been able to figure out it has something to do with trusting him over trusting themselves. There's an awful lot riding on that decision. What if they come to the wrong conclusion about why they shouldn't eat from it? With so much at stake, wouldn't you think that he'd give a little bit more information? If that was you, wouldn't you give your children a little bit more information? Unpack that and make sure that they really understand the importance of this moment. You don't get that. God then allows Satan to waltz into the Garden of Eden, though he already knows how dangerous Satan is. At this point in time, Satan has corrupted one-third of the angelic beings. You think about the insanity of that. Here's this created being who looks across heaven looks at God, compares himself to God, and says, I can take you on, and I can win. And apparently Satan's fairly large because a third of the angels look at that challenge and they say, yeah, we'll bet our lives on it. And they join him. This is not a little person. And God allows him to waltz into the Garden of Eden. It's not a surprise that he's going to try to co-opt these weaker creatures, Adam and Eve. Now, let's put it in a different framework. If a dangerous pit bull is known for attacking people. It's wandered into your backyard where your children are playing. How do you respond? Do you just casually ignore it? Don't you do everything in your power to drive it away while at the same time rushing to go grab your children, bring them to safety? Why sit back? Why watch these things unfold? 
It's actually worse than that. God actively works to set up this situation. Why create the tree? Why create the command? Why tell them, don't eat? It's a little bit like putting candy, a candy dish on the, the coffee table in front of your three-year-old and saying, don't touch, don't have any. Satan's in the garden, and he's lying to Adam and to Eve. And God doesn't refute him. You realize if God wanted to, he could easily step in and just shred all of Satan's arguments. He could address all the slanderous accusations. He can undercover the half-truths. He can expose the serpent for the scheming, deceitful liar that he is, and he doesn't do that. You have to remember here, God is the one who invents language. Language is this pale reflection of how he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all communicating with each other. And in this moment, this critical moment for humanity, God wraps himself in silence. And then lastly, he does nothing. His child toys with the idea of temptation in her mind. She gazes at the fruit. She thinks about it, reaches up, pulls one down, takes a bite, offers it to her partner. He also considers his actions before joining her in sinning against the one who made them. There were so many opportunities to step in at the last moment to dash the fruit out of their hands and rescue them, and God doesn't. What would you do if your child was playing with a coat hanger around an outlet and suddenly just had this urge to jam it in there? What would you do if the child is chasing a ball that now bounces across a busy intersection? You're just going to watch? What happens when your toddler starts to use the bookcase as a ladder and starts climbing up? Do you just sit back and do nothing? You would act. You would do something. You would not simply warn your child. You would take clear physical measures to restrain your child's foolishness, and God didn't. Can you not hear the entire universe scream out why? Why didn't he do that? The answer to that question is crucial to the way that you relate to other people because it's crucial to the heart of God as he relates to you. Now, some people attempt to answer this question by missing the relational aspect of what God is trying to do. And so they will say, well, it's because of free will. God gave humanity free will, and he wasn't going to step back and interrupt that. Or this was a means of showing human beings how bad they are when left to their own devices. And I find all of those responses completely unsatisfying. Because those responses make an assumption that's just not true. Those responses assume what? That humanity is the center of creation. That it's all about you and me. And we spent a lot of time yesterday saying, no, it's not about you and me. It's about God. So if you want to answer the question, why did God not act? You have to ask it from his perspective, not from ours. You have to understand God is revealing himself, right? That's what he's doing in this creation. He's helping you understand parts of the invisible God by making things visible. So you have to ask the question, what becomes visible by not stopping humanity that otherwise would have remained invisible? And you step back and you think, okay, what happened afterward? We looked at this yesterday in Genesis 3.15. God curses the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Curse for the serpent, the beginning of the gospel for human beings. God just announced that he's going to come to the rescue of humanity, rescue us from the forces of evil. It's a moment that lets you see into his heart, that lets you understand that there is something deeper inside of God 
than justice. That justice is deep. You learn that when the angels fall and they are thrown out of heaven. You, un you understand something about the wrath of God and the justice of God. Here you learn something else. You learn that there's also mercy. And you understand that mercy goes down just as far as justice goes down. And God has a passion and a desire for what? For his people. So in allowing them to sin, you see something in God that you never would have seen any other way. If Adam and Eve never sin against God, and they have a great relationship with God, what would they be right in thinking? They'd be right in thinking that God likes us. Why? Because we always do what we're supposed to do. And therefore, the relationship is dependent on what? It's dependent on the strength of how good we are. We always obey. God likes us. You and I don't get to ever think that way anymore. We understand the strength of our relationship with God is not based on our own goodness. It's based on God's goodness. It's based on his mercy, his grace. It's based on something you would not see if God had not sovereignly opened up the opportunity, the possibility of being sinned against. God wants you to see how secure your friendship is with him by seeing how good he is when you're not. Now, does that sound like I'm saying, well, then sin doesn't matter. You should just go out and sin more. Sin more, and guess what? You'll see more of God's goodness. Is that what I'm saying? Well, Paul anticipates that objection in Romans 6.1. He says, what shall we say then? Because he's been unpacking the grace of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace that sin may abound? Is it okay to just keep doing what we know is wrong? Is sin no longer as bad as we once thought it was? Okay, it doomed a third of the angels, but maybe something has changed in God. Shall we continue in it so that goodness, so that grace so will, will abound, so that we'll get to see more and more and more of this? And Paul says, you're absolutely out of your mind if you're thinking that way. He answers his own question, by no means. It cost the life of the Son of God to pay for that sin. By no means. The very thought of that put Jesus in agony. By no means. The very thought of it starts to pour out sweat from his forehead like blood. He can hardly stand to think about what he has to go through in order to rescue us. By no means. If you're continuing in sin, something that you know is wrong and you don't care and you just harden your heart against it and you don't want to change, you don't get it. That's what by no means means. You don't get it. You don't understand what grace is. You don't understand the point of grace. Grace is not so that you stay where you are. Grace is to welcome you into something that you didn't have. It's to bring you into a relationship with God. If you don't hate sin, there's something wrong with you spiritually. You're spiritually broken. You're blind, deceived. You and me both. It may be that you don't even have real life in you if you can think in this way. By no means. If you're okay with sin, you do not understand grace. By no means. And yet, Paul says, that objection ought to happen if we really unpack the gospel. If we unpack the gospel correctly, that ought to elicit from people, hey, does that mean that we should, <laughs> we should just keep sinning so we get to see more and more of God? If that response doesn't come from the people that we're talking to, we have not gone 
clearly enough in unpacking the gospel as Paul does. Paul says, I get this objection when I'm talking about the gospel. This is a normal, natural response that I should be getting. Had this one time. I thought, okay, I'm getting closer finally. No one will object to that unless you come very close to saying God invites you to sin against him so that you can see his glory. Again, I understand I'm being provocative. But if you're not getting close to that, you're not getting to the gospel. That's what's happening in the Garden of Eden. God does not solicit evil to come out of his people. He is not the creator of sin. What does God do? He sovereignly opens the door in his universe to allow himself to be sinned against for the purpose of showing you his grace. It's what Romans 11.32 means. You should write this down, Romans 11.32. Spend some time meditating on this this week. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has consigned, he's given over, he's bound, he's consigned everyone to disobedience for a purpose. God did it. He takes responsibility for it. He allowed it. Set the conditions up for it to happen. God consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. If Adam and Eve had obeyed perfectly, they would have experienced perfect fellowship with God. But it would have been at this very shallow level. They would have never been able to understand the depths of God's love for them and his passion for them. They'd have had no way to know that their relationship with God depended more on his goodness to them than it ever depended on their obedience. They'd never have known the security of a friendship based on grace instead of a relationship based on merit. And you have to understand this. This is not just sort of happened and then God said, okay, let's make the best of a bad deal. This is something that God longed for with you and me. This was something that he wanted you to know about the core nature of who he is. And so he did not create a world in which we would be perfect. He created a world that was perfect for displaying himself for displaying his character, for making himself known, for taking our imperfections upon himself to demonstrate his perfections. Sin and rebellion are not good things. We may not sin so that grace will abound. But in redeeming sin, God's goodness is revealed in a way that we would never have known otherwise. One of the primary ways that the invisible God reveals himself to you is in the way that he treats you after you've sinned. Now, since that's the case, you should not be surprised that he calls you to treat others in the same way with the same graciousness when they sin against you. How will they know the strength of your relationship with them? It's not when they're good. It's when they're not. And so we're urged to play a part in calling people to recognize God's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us this. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You're an ambassador of this gracious God. You're an ambassador of this God who is reconciling human beings to himself. That means that when you respond to other people, they should get a glimpse of what this reconciling God is like. 
They should have a taste of what it means to be in the presence of someone who wants to have a relationship with them despite what they have done. When they see you, they should conclude, God would act with me exactly the same way that this other person is acting with me. And so as we reconcile, as we offer to reconcile with people who have sinned against us, we're communicating what it means as an ambassador, what it means to be in relationship with God. And so you have to ask, how do people experience you when they sin against you? Are you someone whose response in that moment turns people away? Do you communicate to people, I will relate to you when you hit my standard. I will relate to you unless you go above a certain threshold. I will relate to you as long as you're someone that I like. But if you cross that line, then no more. Or are you someone who responds in a way that invites people closer, that communicates we can still have a relationship, we have a lot of work to do, but we can still have a relationship even after what you have done. I had a really weird week one time. <laughs> this really came home to me at one point. Uh, had somebody that I was trying to serve a, a sin against me, waste an, an incredible amount of my time in a way that was just, uh, went right to the heart of all the things I hate. Uh, a couple days later, I experienced a similar incident with a staff member at work. A few days later, I experienced something with one of my kids. The, the weirdness of my week is not that people sinned against me. The weirdness was in each of those three times I acted out of character. I was kind. <laughs> I responded in a way that actually invited them in a little bit more, that allowed us to talk through that thing that happened, to get down to why that thing happened, and then to actually develop a relationship. Some, the relationships were each stronger afterward. And it was startling enough that I sat back and I reflected on those three experiences and started to realize that when other people are good to me, there's no need for me to extend grace to them. I don't need to extend mercy to you if you're always nice to me and if you're always working with me and making my world work. People need grace from me when they're out of line, which means that the only context that anyone will ever have for experiencing grace from me is when, what? When they need it, which is another way of saying when they sin against me. So if you want to be a grace-filled, gracious person, what do you have to do? You have to expect to be sinned against. Otherwise, there is no need for you to love other people and have your love cover a multitude of sins, as First Peter puts it. So since a crucial element of being an ambassador for Christ involves covering over other people's sins, not ignoring them, but forgiving them, then you need to expect to be sinned against. You should anticipate it. And that goes completely against the grain of how I've lived most of my life. Instead of welcoming opportunities to show God's kindness, I work hard to minimize the necessity of showing God's kindness. Sally's been on the receiving end of this for decades. I've had countless conversations with her, all geared entirely toward this thought, how can I say what I'm about to say in the best way possible so we never have to have this conversation again? That's my goal. Could we just not have one more irritating conversation? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to say, I don't want to give kindness. She's not that hard to live with. I am. I've tried the time-honored traditions of threatening my children so they don't cross me. I, when that doesn't work, I try bribing them so that they'll leave me alone. Other people, what do I do? I try to bully. I try to intimidate. When that doesn't work, I ignore. I run away. All of those approaches have one thing in common. 
They are all strategies with one goal, and that goal is to make sure that other people don't sin against me. But if you think about it, that means that my goal is that I never have to extend grace to anybody, that nobody ever has to, never gets the opportunity to experience grace from me. Nobody ever gets the experience of mercy from me. Being his ambassador means that you, when you sin against me, you should see a reflection of God's grace in me. Small, to be sure, I get that. But one that's genuine and accurate and that tells you something about who God is. So when I work to insulate myself from other people's failings, I take away the context that there would be to see a likeness of Christ's response to sin. Keeping everybody else at arm's length keeps me safe. There's a huge cost to pay, which is that I don't get the opportunity to communicate the gospel in my life. So if you want to love people well, you have to learn to see people sinning against you as normal. You have to see those as opportunities instead of as interruptions. I'm not inviting you to become paranoid. I'm inviting you to expect that people will sin against you instead of you being surprised when they do. Now, this is very different from saying, oh, it's great to just let people walk all over you. I'm not saying that. Keep the goal clear. You are not inviting people to sin against you. They're going to do that is what I'm trying to tell you you're inviting them to get a taste of what grace means when they sin against you. The kind of forgiveness that you offer communicates the kind of relationship that you're hoping to build. Real ambassadors of Christ do not overlook the sins of someone else. Real ambassadors call people to be reconciled. When Jesus forgives you, he longs for you to do what? To stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> to move toward him, to develop a different way of living with him. You realize that sometimes when people ask for forgiveness, it's not because they really want forgiveness, they want permission. They want to keep doing the same thing that they're doing, they just don't want to feel bad about it. You get this a lot with your kids, right? They'll ask you for forgiveness and you think, you don't really want a restored relationship, you don't want to build something new, you just want me off your back, and you just want to keep on doing what you're already doing number of times I've had to look at the kids and say, what do you mean by forgiveness? I'm happy to forgive if you want another chance to build a good relationship with me. I'm happy to forgive. I'm not happy to do what you're asking me to do if that means you just want to keep doing what you're doing. So you have to remember the point of grace. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. There's a goal here that you would repent, that you would turn from those things that you've been doing, not that you would stay stuck in them. If you're not repenting, if you're not coming to see the world the way that God sees it, if you're not interested in agreeing with him, then you're not really accepting his kindness. His kindness has an intention. It has a purpose. It's not just sort of hanging out there you know, for, for anybody to take for any reason. It's kindness, it's, with the whole, it's the withholding of anger and wrath to give you a chance. Give you a chance to have something different, something better with him. Grace is offered so that you would receive it and have a new life. Grace is not offered so that you can just keep on doing what you've already been doing. Human forgiveness then is similar. It's a dim echo of divine forgiveness. And it's inviting somebody to respond, to have a different life with you. 
So when I'm willing to forgive you, when I'm willing to cover your sins, I'm inviting you to recognize you've hurt me. There's something here that has, that has a cost. And if you're asking me to forgive, you're asking me to pay that cost. I'm willing to do that so that we can have the chance of having a real relationship. I'm not willing to do that if you're saying, I just want to be able to keep hurting you whenever I feel like hurting you. You're not asking for reconciliation. You're not asking for repentance. We're about halfway through my notes. I'm trying to figure out what to say now because I don't want to keep you here all day. If you're anything like me, there are these days, however, when you just don't want to forgive anymore. You feel assaulted by your children's slights and insults. You feel taken for granted by the way that your friend just keeps running roughshod over top of you or the way that people at work feel like you're just endless and, and, and they always want more. In those moments, forgiving does not seem glorious or compelling. And those are the moments when I have to realize one more time that I live to promote the glory of God. And I don't think that I'm the only one who forgets that. Did, uh, show of hands, how many of you woke up this morning just crying out for the glory of God, to, the opportunity to show the glory of God today to weak, fallen human beings who are going to sin horribly against you? Who asked for that? That's our calling. It's why we're here. We're not here to eat breakfast. We eat breakfast so that we can show the glory of God. We're here today worshiping to see the glory of God, to show that to each other. When you find his forgiveness, re-energized by what he's done, how he's related to you, you realize this is the point and purpose of life. This is the calling of God, that we would show each other who God is. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, okay, that sounds great, but if I'm hearing you correctly, it doesn't sound like there's any guarantee that that other person's going to respond. And, and, and that doesn't seem quite fair. I'm just supposed to keep forgiving, extending myself to people without any way of being sure that I'm getting through to, eat to anyone else. Not sure how long I can keep doing that without knowing that I'm just sort of wasting my breath or not. By the way, that doesn't really seem all that fair. I mean, God extends forgiveness, sure, but he already knows the future, and he chooses his children, so he's never in danger of his words being squandered, right? Realize, no, actually, God's position is much worse than your position and my position. He knows the future, and yet he decides to say things to people, to call them to himself, even when they're going to reject him and not come to him. And he still shows them that graciousness in himself. If that was my reality, I don't think I'd bother talking to whoever was, you know, that wasn't going to hear me. But you think about God and the way that he interacts with people who want nothing to do with him. He makes his rainfall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He reaches out over long periods of time through the Old Testament prophets to people who despise him. He reveals himself to his creatures even though they don't take him up on his invitation to know him. <laughs> Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1, talk about how people see who God is by the things that he's made, and they reject him in that same moment. God bases his decision to engage people on something other than the certainty that he'll be received. He bases it on something other than the certainty that people will take him up on that offer and be reconciled with him. Genesis chapter 4, here's another great passage. God interacts with Cain. God comes to him and warns him, sin is about to master him. God sees, you're about to kill your brother Abel. Sin is going to master you. What is that? That's grace on God's part. 
He does not owe that to Cain. Cain completely ignores that, kills his brother, someone made in the image of God, someone who is a righteous man. In response, God again comes to him. That's grace again. Starts another conversation, more grace, and he asks this open-ended question, where's your brother? And Cain blows him off. What are you seeing in that? God does not withhold his words, even though Cain ignores him. God knows that before he starts that conversation. Enters into that conversation anyway. What? Because that's what Cain needs to hear. Or you think about Jonah. It's a story of God relentlessly engaging a man who just keeps turning away from him. You really see God's pursuit in that last chapter. God tries a number of different times to invite Jonah to extend the same kind of grace to other people that Jonah himself has just recently received. And the story ends absolutely ambiguously. God asks Jonah a question. Should I not have compassion on that great city of Nineveh? Just like I had compassion on you. Should I not do that? And there's radio silence. There's no response from Jonah. There's no guarantee that Jonah's going to hear that and move toward God. You're dying to know at the end of the book. <laughs> what did he do? And the question hangs there. Why? It's the same question for you. And God is inviting you to be on the other end of that question, <laughs> responding to that question. God does this regularly. It's why the story of the prodigal son ends the way that it does. Okay, you all know the, the, the younger son runs off and returns, and, and the father engages with the younger son. The, the father also engages with the older son. Older son is pretty upset and pretty angry, the way the father is being gracious to the younger son, and the father does not wait for the older son to come to him. Instead, he goes to the, younger, to the older son, and he pursues this one. He goes outside the party to find him. And when he finds him, he starts a conversation. It's not a harsh rebuke. It's not a lecture. It's a gracious, winsome invitation. It's an invitation to restore relationship with the younger brother. He says to the older brother, we had to celebrate that he's back from the dead. And he says to him, you're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. You already have grace. And now you need to extend that grace to your younger brother. And then the story ends. And you're wondering, does the older brother go back in to hang out with the younger brother? Does, does he go, oh my goodness, I, I see it. I see everything I've been given. I'm so sorry. I repent. I'm turning back. And you're left wondering, well, what happens? Or does he stay stuck outside, sullen and estranged? You don't know. You're not told. Why is that? Because Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. <laughs> They're the older brother. The invitation is going to them. You have everything that you possibly could have. All of the grace that I've ever been able to give is yours. Do you want it? And you have absolutely no idea whether they take it or not. In other words, God offers grace to Cain, to Jonah, to the Pharisees, to you. It's a legitimate offer. But unless you receive that offer, it's just hanging out there. The offer itself does not guarantee that someone's going to respond. You still have to respond. You have to want to turn away from whatever has put distance between you and God. You have to want to take advantage of this grace. God makes the offer, but the offer does not guarantee that people will receive it. And the same is true of you and your relationships. You have to make the offer. There's no guarantee that the offer will be received. Now, why would you do that? Four reasons, real quickly. 
You do that first because reaching out to someone else is what they need. You start to recognize their need is more important than my uncomfortableness. What do your friends and family need when they're in trouble, when they're making foolish decisions, when they need guidance, when they're stuck in their stubbornness? They need someone who cares enough about them in their world to risk rejection and speak in such a way to offer them what they need. That's number one. You do this because that's what they need. Number two, you start up these conversations without knowing where they're going to end because it's one way that we express the reality it really is better to give than to receive. If the only time that I'll talk to the people in my life is when I'm certain that I can shape an outcome, I'm not really focused on giving. I'm focused on getting. And I'm focused on my agenda that I think is actually going to be the best one. I'm no longer considering someone whose thoughts, opinions, desires, and interests are just as important as my own. Third reason that you initiate these conversations. Listen, this, this sentence is going to be convoluted. The potential of a restored relationship is worth more than its guaranteed absence. The potential of having someone return is worth a whole lot more than being certain that it won't happen. So when your friends are difficult, it's really easy to lecture, to command, to dictate, to say as little as possible, to withdraw, to back away, to say nothing. In other words, when they're unlo unlovely, it's easy not to love in return. But when you don't issue that invitation to return, to reconcile, to repent, to come back, you give them absolutely no reason to want a relationship with you. There is no goodness that you're offering them saying, it really would be a great thing to have a relationship with me. You're at worst giving them a disincentive. You're telling them, I really don't want a good relationship with you. That's the guarantee of no relationship when you don't engage them, when you don't invite them. You have to ask yourself, is the possibility of them responding worth more than the guarantee that, they won't, that, that I give them no reason to, to come back? You have to ask yourself, six months from now, what, what am I going to be more upset with? That I took the risk and gave them something they didn't respond, or that I gave them absolutely no reason to respond? Then fourth, why do you reach out to people in these uncertain conversations? It's because you get more of God. It's the gospel. You get more of him. And because you get more of him, you have something to give away. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 tells us that if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, if someone is out there and they insult you because of the name of Christ, because you are acting in such a way that they go, yeah, that's, that's what Christians are like. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. And you think, that doesn't make a bit of sense. Why, why am I blessed? For, because, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And what God is saying in that moment is, if you take it on the chin for my sake, you extend grace, mercy, kindness for the sake, the hope of relationship, if you take it on the chin for my sake, I will make it up to you. They might push you further away if you're insulted for the sake of Christ, but I will come near to you. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're blessed because you get more of God in those moments. Why? Because you're acting in the way that God himself would act. And you're communicating to the rest of the watching world, this is who God is like. This is what he is like. And so I take that risk to enter into 
uh, conversations that I don't know where they're going to go because I know at the very least, the least, I get the Spirit of God and glory that's worth it. My family went away for our annual vacation one year. And this was one of those years where they were old enough. I really wanted this to be special for everybody. We went down the shore. And so I thought about it in advance. I pulled together books that I thought people might like to, to read, games to play, food to eat, movies to watch. I wanted this to be a break for everybody. And it was a disaster. <laughs> I put weeks into thinking about this. There was constant complaining, fighting, bickering, squabbling. Nothing was ever good enough. Someone was always regular. Why are they up there at the beach? It's never good enough, and someone is always upset, and I seem to be in the middle of it all the time, taking the brunt of all this unhappiness. And so, I, you know, first several days, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to talk and jolly each, everybody along. Come on, come on, let's go. This is fun. This is great. What is wrong with you? The whole bit. <laughs> several days, I'm worn out, and I'm thinking about a passage out of Zechariah. Turned to that that morning uh, before everybody was up, and it's all about a shepherd, Zechariah 11. It's a shepherd who took over a flock of sheep that had been mistreated. And the shepherd's really excited at the beginning of this. And, and he's working hard to care for them. At the end result, all of his efforts uh, are, are useless. And you read there that the flock detested me. And I grew weary of them. And I thought, wow, <laughs> someone who's lived in my world. I thought, that's God's experience of his people. They detested him. Having tried to shepherd my family over this last week, I get that. I, I, I'm sharing something similar with God. This is what it's like to be something of uh, in line with who God is. This, is. this is what he experiences in this world. And there's a good moment. There's a comforting moment of identification with God until I sat there and realized, oh, wait, I'm part of the flock that hated him. And he doesn't hate me still loves me even though I've detested him and I've detested all of his attempts at parenting me. It was a great opportunity to see more of who God is. Where? In the middle of a sin-cursed, fallen world. And you get to see the heart of the invisible God a little bit more visibly in that moment. God used what looked like a loss of relationship with my family to produce greater confidence in me that he would actually continue to shepherd me and continue to be my shepherd, which renewed my energy to do what? To step back into people's worlds and try again. That's what you need. Don't look at sin when people sin against you as something to hate. Look at it as an opportunity. Go back to the Lord. God, how do you want to redeem this? How do you want to reconcile this? How do you want to call people to repent? How do you want to offer an invitation? They might not take it. How do you want to offer an invitation through me as an ambassador, someone who would give them a glimpse of what you're like? Let's pray. Holy God, we are on our own, <coughs> unable to stand in your presence. Lord, our good works are filthy in your eyes, tainted with sin. It's our blindness that keeps us from seeing that. It's our, uh, the ways that we deceive ourselves to thinking that we're really pretty decent people. Lord, you've seen all that, you know that, and you came and were gracious to us anyway. Jesus, thank you. Lord, let us see more of you. 
see this as something that you have done for us personally. And in this moment, Lord, give us a hatred of sin and a passion for you and a passion to make you known in the day-to-day, the little things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may remain seated. Uh, we're going to end our time um, praising the Lord, but also praying for some of these things for our church. And uh, we're going to sing this praise that we've been singing uh, throughout the retreat. And uh, let's really lift this up as a story of what God has done in us and what we hope to do in him, um, starting with our lives, but also to those around us. So uh, let's sing this praise. And before we do, let's just take a few seconds and let's just really lift up to the Lord. Lord. All these things that I've heard, things that I've been convicted of, God, um, may continue to do this work in me, uh, not just here at this retreat, but on the ride home. And, and when we do get home, um, after the retreat, there's always that moment. I, I put down my bags and I just plop on my bed and I have this kind of huge crossroads in my head. You know, am I just going <laughs> to get out of retreat mode and just be all about me, get my rest, do what I need, or am I going to continue? Uh, God's work in me, just even at home. Uh, So let's pray for that moment. Let's pray for our rights home, and then we'll continue uh, with this praise.